Hi everyone, I'm Marwan Abdelhamid and you're listening to the Palestinian Excellence Podcast. So this is a pretty simple podcast. I basically just talk to successful Palestinians. And today I had the honor of talking to the distinguished legal scholar and author Noura Arakat. In this episode, we talked about her childhood, how her passion for activism started, the ups and downs of her career in law, and ultimately what the future of Palestine looks like. So ahlo sahla fiku, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. My first, first memory of being Arab intersubjectively in a community amongst my classmates was in the third grade. I was about nine years old. Um, the first Bush had basically declared war on Iraq and was about to invade. And our teacher, Mrs. Darrow, was talking about it in the classroom. And I raised my hand and explained that Bush wasn't going to, you know, invade Iraq to protect the United States, but he wanted its oil. And I'm I remember nine years old. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but that's not because I was brilliant. That's because I was growing up in a house <laughs> that understood, right? If, if you're an Arab kid in an Arab household, these, it's like knowing that Santa Claus isn't real, right? You don't believe any of this hype. So, you know, I'm just, you know, it's what I heard at home. It's what I knew. My mom grew up um, in Quit. My father, you know, even though she's Palestinian, we, we understood these things. And so I was just communicating that for me, what was the truth in the class that didn't go over very well, but that was my first memory. And I remember that was when I started just to be coming my eyes open. I still remember vividly, you know, even in the inquirer, the vilification of Saddam Hussein. Now, Saddam Hussein is a tyrant, okay? An absolute tyrant who has blood on his hands, has deployed chemical weapons against uh, Kurds, was, you know, repressive of any political dissent, and, and that's putting it lightly. But it was also unnerving to me to see the way that he was demonized in the U.S. press, um, where, I, like, he, he, was, he was portrayed to the point of, you know, they were saying he's a cross-dresser. In other, in other magazines, they were saying, you know, he's he's the devil and he worships, you know, he drinks blood. So it was that extent of the demonization that for me, you know, at a young age, I was like, well, this is crazy. <laughs> and I can know it's fully crazy. Um, those are my first um, memories. The first time I kind of acted on my uh, my my Palestinian identity, <clears throat> where that became more central to my identity was probably in the sixth grade when I started to write about it for homework assignments, you know? Um, that what did you write about? My... I remember the first one was just like, what's the history of it? You know, as, and as a sixth grader, what, you're 12, 11, 12? As a sixth grader, I did like the basic rundown of this is what happened and here's the UN partition plan and, you know, why can't there be peace and there should be you know, a land for two people. And it was actually in that moment that I think I didn't know this, but I, you know, that was when my teacher wrote back and said very on a personal level, how refreshing it was for her. And I realized in that moment, oh, wow, my teacher's Jewish, you know, mm. because she said, this is personal for me too. And so those were the first kind of um, 
moments. Otherwise, I was doing, you know, Depke for talent night. I was that one kid who would show up to International Light in a tub by herself. Might have been the fifth grade and like did the Wahd al-Nus across the stage about 10,000 times then got off the stage. Amazing. So, so <laughs> right? It, so those are the fair? first memories. Is it huh? fair to say? Is it fair to say that you were never ashamed of your Arab Palestinian heritage? Because I, you know, to, from talking with Arab Americans, you know, personally, because I'm not Arab American, but I've seen that a lot of them kind of hide their Arab identity. So, is it fair? No, to say that no, not at all. Not even a little bit. I was never, ever, ever ashamed, and I never had that complex. And I never, thank God, my parents. Like we also went to a school because it was so. So such an, we didn't live in a white space, Marwan. So why do you think people feel ashamed? I mean, that was also the thing. I didn't. But I don't. I, I I think white supremacy is a thing in the United States. If there's violence, like your your parents are going to encourage you to blend in to speak English. I grew up in a really immigrant space, so that you know, in in, the, in my elementary school, our teachers told my parents, "You speak your language to your children at home. We'll speak to we'll speak English to them at school." I mean, that was literally that was the kindergarten message, which is why I mean, and and then I continued to preserve my language, but. You know that I didn't ever grow up with that kind of complex with blacks. There wasn't, you know, I never felt inferior to anybody. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't, I wasn't in a white space where I had to blend in or feel inferior. I did feel out of place because I was one of the only ones all the time, right? I couldn't relate to anybody. Like the closest I can get to was like my desi friends, just in terms of you know even appearance, like my desi friends or my Latinx friends, but the Arab community that we had was one that was, you know, my family, our extended family in the Bay Area where I grew up, which was, it, it, you know, it runs deep. So I also had the benefit of seeing them on the weekends or at weddings or azayim, but they weren't my, my day-to-day. Um, and so the only thing I ever felt was like a desire for more being in a community where I didn't always feel like the black swan or the, you know, the, I don't want to say ugly duck thing. I don't want to put it like that, but like just always the one, right. I was always the one, the one Arab, the one Palestinian, the one Muslim, um, the only one fasting. Right. So that was the thing I craved. Um, but I never felt ashamed. I never felt ashamed. Blacks. I would make it everywhere. <laughs> I love that. No, I love that. And I think it's really cool. You know, I honestly can relate to that. Because when I came to America two years ago to study, I was also the only Palestinian. And it was, you know, growing up in Jordan, I wasn't always the only Palestinian. But it kind of brings out this, like, <laughs> it, it brings out this um, desire to tell people about Palestine and everything. So I, 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 um, I think that's, that's interesting. And, you know, the fact that you were not ashamed because you were the only one is, I think, uh, kind of cool. Because a lot of people no, are no, but ashamed. let me let me just but let me just make clear. It wasn't because I was the only one, right? It was because I wasn't living. I think it's because I wasn't living in a white dominant community that would have hammered over my head my inferiority of being an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. Like, had I grown up in a different space, you know, it wouldn't. It's not about my constitution of like how great I am that you know I I wanted to be proud. It was about my environment. 
I lived in an immigrant community. And that really matters because those are the messages that are being sent across. Like nobody ever, you know, I remember my brother being bullied. I remember people poking fun and calling, you know, I remember vividly like being, him being bullied at the bus stop and being called like Gandhi and whatever. But aside from those, and I, I think my brothers had a harder time than I did for a lot of reasons, but I, I never got bullied. I never, you know, nobody ever gave me a hard time about it. The hard thing was obviously I was going to be left out of a lot of things because if I'm Muslim, no, nah, my parents aren't going to let me go to the dances and hang out after school at my friend's house and, and have a curfew. That was none of it, right? And, and, and frankly, those I actually wage were as a girl because my brothers could do all those things. They could do all those things. They could go play after school with their friends. They could go to the mall if they wanted to. They could play sports all day long. But my family, you know, to protect me as a girl, and these are things I didn't understand because I wasn't in the Arab world, you know, this whole idea about sharaf, um, and, and like this very stark differentiation, right? Where I was at home doing all the chores and cleaning and being with my mom. I had three brothers, but I got none of the privileges they got right? That was my first battle. I was like, this is the most unfair. If I do, if I'm doing most of the chores and I have most of the responsibility, then I should be one given the most slacks. You should trust me the most because you've taught me responsibility. And it wasn't like that was my first political consciousness was around being a girl, not even a Palestinian, Amazing. definitely not being an Arab. It was around being a girl and how unfair, just because of that like, circumstance of birth, right? How things were set up of what I was supposed to do in life and what I could do and what I was able to do versus what my brothers would do. So in fact, it was like, I developed a consciousness. Super, my first protest was a protest in, in you know, at home. I turned the broom, I'm banaddaf, I'm ba'azdil. I turned the broom over, right? that I was sweeping, I turned it over and I started marching in the house saying, hell no, I won't clean. Um, and my first, uh, you know, protest got ended, shut down hella quick because mama started, you know, as we all know, mama started throwing boa beige at me um, and telling me to get back to work. But those, and but I kept at it until my brothers each got chores too. And it was that, it was that consciousness about like how unfair things can be because of something that society said or how things are, what people say, this is just how things are, or how we're born in these circumstances, that then opened up my eyes to be able to see a lot of injustice, right? For Palestinians, for Black communities, for immigrant communities, right? For other, um, other ex you know, excluded communities. And in high school, I didn't want to be an advocate for Palestine. I wanted to be a humanitarian. Like those were my goals. I wanted to go to school. I, and this before I developed a critique of imperialism and understood that we lived in empire and understood that we that the United States is a white settler colony. You know, my ambitions were I wanted to become the first woman secretary of state. This is before Madeleine Albright, uh, you know, ended up taking up that mantle. But I was also, you know, still immersed in this liberalism. Um, um, and even when my my fam my uncle, I remember my uncle asking me, he goes, why why do you want to be a humanitarian? Why don't you do something uh, for your people? And I said, because all people are the same and all people need it. It wasn't until 
I was in college and I did my first visit to Palestine, not in the capacity of visiting family, but I made that first trip in the capacity of like actually volunteering at a refugee camp, which even if you're Palestinian and you go every year and you do whatever, if you're not a refugee, it's rare that you get to a refugee camp because they're so ghettoized in our community. And there is such a class bias, you know, as much as we say, we're nationalists, the Wataniin and da da da, and refugees are the cornerstone of our cause. The truth is, is that there's a deep classism that excludes and you know shapes how we treat refugees amongst us, rather than wearing them as a crown on our head, as carrying, you know, our our struggle and marching forward historically and into the present. Um, it was that where I was like, you know, that that developed my consciousness, and I and I got back to college and said, uh, you know. There's a lot of people working on a lot of issues. There's really not that many people doing Palestine. And it's not that I, you know, yes, obviously it's in my blood, but it's not that I thought, you know, I didn't exceptionalize it. I didn't think it was the worst tragedy. I didn't think, you know, you know, this, you know, everything else was subsumed by it, but I did understand that in the, you know, distribution of, of attention and advocacy and resources, that in the United States, there just weren't as many. The space for Palestinian advocacy was not as broad as the space for these other things I cared about. And so that was a really kind of decision. Well, if, you know, then I'll do it, you know, n without giving up or sacrificing anything else I cared about, which is why it remains central um, to, to all the work that I do. And why, in fact, you know, as intersectionality has come back into, you know, fashion, so to speak, it didn't really come back for me because that's, you know, that's just been the way that just who I, it's almost like I was intersectional before, you know, um, that happened. And that, ha that, ha that has to do with where you grow up and the analysis that you develop. So how does it feel to be, you know, one of the first, uh, I guess, in America kind of creating and opening up a space for Palestinian advocates? How, like, do you, would you consider yourself one of the first? And who, who are some kind of, did you have any role models growing up, Palestinian role models? So those are both great questions. The first answer is no, I was not one of the first. I think, you know, every generation as they come into consciousness looks up and sees who's doing it. So I think for, you know, for a particular generation, they looked up and saw me. So I seem like one of the first, but I'm not, right? I'm following in the footsteps of so many people, right? There have been, um, and, and folks have paid a very heavy price for this activism well before me um, and have written about it. Um, I mean, I mean, just think about the Los Angeles Eight. This was a group of seven Palestinians and one Kenyan who as university students were distributing PFLP pamphlets at their university. They were selling it in order to raise money for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which has since been designated as um, you know, a state, state department list of terrorist organizations. We can talk about that later. That same pamphlet was available publicly in university libraries. I mean, they weren't distributing contraband, right? Um, but because it was Palestinian and it intersected, you know, it had a very um, anti-capitalist critique, which is, the, you know, part of one of the pillars of, of the PFLP um, and an anti-imperialist critique, they, they were on trial for 20 years, 
Okay. The FBI raided their homes. They ruined, you know, their lives. They were at threat of deportation. They were under surveillance. This was in 19, this started in 1988. I was only eight years old. So I definitely wasn't one of the first, but I do understand why when people look up at a particular age and see me, and maybe that's the newness of it, that we, um, up until, I don't know, maybe four, five, six years, something recent, um, there weren't a lot of Palestinians on television either. And so I think that the other dimension of it is the visibility of, you know, in media. And that's a major success. Now, I was, you know, one of the few that, you know, have been a part of that cycle. Um, and I'm all, still not the one, but like one of a few. But the, the truth is, is that also is the result of our struggles before us who made the space, who fought for it, who, who, you know, I was also part of groups 10, 15 years ago, meeting with the editorial um, offices of the Washington Post and the New York Times, telling them you can't keep throwing us under the damn bus, right? But I, that, that advocacy builds up to a moment. And now you have institutions like the Institute for Middle East Understanding. Now you have the, you know, social media, which in many ways democratized, you know, what can be said and what is truth that has created more and more space for Palestinians in media. And in that regard, I become, because I'm part of that, um, along with, you know, um, Yusuf Munayyad, Diana Buttu, um, Amr Baddar, Hanan Ashrawi, who has continued to do this for many decades before, my late uncle, Dr. Saeb Ariqat, right? Um, that now that we're part of this wave, right? Yara Hawari, who's doing it now, like I was part of this wave of greater um, visibility. And so, yeah, I could see why anyone would think I'm the first, but I'm definitely not. None of us are ever the first. Our history is rich and it's a history of resistance and it's a history of fighting against, you know, um, the worst odds and, 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 and not giving up. Did I have role models growing up? Saraha, not Arab or Muslim ones, which is unfortunate, you know, but it's also, this is the thing I'll say about my family. Even though we were raised very Arab, my family did not want me to get into politics at all. Mm. It was, it, I would actually get in trouble for, for, you know, for going to protests and for do, going to meetings. That was, a, I, telling you, my, my primary struggles were my, my struggles internally as a family and, and these things. So we, I didn't really get a history of Palestine or a social history from my family as many young people do. I got that history on my own. So my role models growing up were the history that I did have access to. So one of my greatest role models was Cesar Chavez, who was a Mexican farm worker who ends up leading, unionizing, right? Organizing Mexican farm workers in California and the United Farm Workers, um, it's a union, um, waging the largest um, boycott against grapes along with Dolores Huerta and others in, it goes on a fast, right, in order to achieve uh, greater equity for, for farm workers, for those who are working the lands and being exploited because of their vulnerability as both, um, you know, immigrants and uh, just what, what is considered redundant labor um, or, or, or mat, you know, um, easily replaceable labor. Um, and so he was a role model for me, right? That was, that was somebody I looked to and I was like, wow, 
wow, this is something that's major for me. Legend. Um, yeah. Amazing. Um, but not, but in terms of Arabs, you know, it was who I saw. I, I used to see Hanan Ashrawi. I thought she was cool. <laughs> and then later, you know, I realized, you know, she's also, she's not only the spokes, you know, one of the first spokespeople and of the most eloquent for Palestinians. Um, but um, she was also, you know, she was a PhD in English. And she also established the English and um, department at Birzeit University, right? So here was somebody who was always con also contributing in trailblazing and knowledge production. And, you know, and, and, and I'm critical of what has happened to the Palestinian leadership, which she remained a part of until very recently. So obviously it's taken with a grain of salt, but I don't throw out ever all of her contributions ongoing as well because of that you know, ongoing commitment. It's something that I tried um, to understand and also include, you know, I interviewed her for my book as part of the chapter on Oslo and also try to understand why is it after the betrayal of Oslo, she remained part of the structure. Um, you know, and I'm not excusing her, but these are things that just as you come into consciousness to take things in with complexity. Um, but she was also somebody that I watched, right? But that was probably it. I think a lot of uh, young Palestinians out there can relate, to be honest, you know, not having many Palestinian role models, which is a shame and, you know, hopefully something that we can change. And you talked about your book, and I know that in your book, one of the main themes is, you know, law is politics. Um, do you want to kind of elaborate on that? So the, the long story is I go to law school because I naively think that despite all of our activism, right, we had launched divestment at Berkeley in 2001 when Ariel Sharon was elected into office for the second time in the midst of the Al-Aqsa, what's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada. And, um, you know, we at UC Berkeley, the Students for Justice in Palestine, literally occupied Wheeler Hall during a midterm, made people evacuate, chained the doors. We later, we got arrested. We built a refugee camp on campus um, and had people join us. We set up a checkpoint on campus. It was, it was guerrilla activism, <laughs> anarchist, because no, for real, like in the literal sense, because we never um, ever um, uh, uh, registered ourselves as a student group on campus so that we didn't have to apply for permits and get in trouble and suspended and whatever. Right. So there was like a deliberate decision. We did a lot. We did a lot. I was also a member of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, San Francisco chapter, which also was incredibly active. We were, you know, set up uh, billboards against uh, the sanctions on Iraq. We were doing all sorts of work around Palestine. So I was I was in a community. I was so blessed to be in a community that educated me. My my greatest education and I share this with my students all the time. My greatest education was actually in, in, in the crucible of activism. That's where I got my primary education as a college student. Um, and I encourage others to, to think about those spaces as spaces that, that mold us as a, as a result of struggle. But I was also really frustrated because we didn't have tangible outcomes. You know, when you're young, you, you kind of want to see, well, I did X, what's the outcome? It should be Y not understanding that these are like long-term, that your outcomes are generative and generational um, and you're, you're, you're producing a cultural shift that you might not be able to see. Um, and so that prompted me to go to law school thinking, ah, if I use the law, 
then it's outside of the political realm. You just stand in front of a judge, you give your piece, everybody gives their piece, and then that, that's going to get us to where we need to go. And law school was, frankly, a shit show. It was awful. <laughs> I hated it. I was, I hated it. I was not, I was always the, I was always a great student. Suddenly I was like the worst student in class in law school. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, first of all, most of my classmates were, came from really elite places and, and wanted to, or they just were interested in reproducing wealth fast because you could do that as a lawyer. You can do in like that three-year graduate graduate degree, degree, you really can skyrocket into a different socioeconomic status that would take a much longer time if you studied to be a doctor, for example, right? So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of business-minded. It was more like a business school. And I imagined that it would be a justice school. So it was my naivety, but I was also first-generation lawyer in my family, right? I didn't know any better. And I also thought we would learn about the law. And instead, we, it was a different pedagogy where we would literally read case studies and then the teacher would ask us questions. There was never a lecture. The teacher would ask us questions about things in the case studies. And somehow after the end of that you know, class, we were supposed to know something new. I felt like I was in a class where everybody was speaking Mandarin and I had no idea what was going on. I was so out of my league. I was so out of my depth. Um, you know, I ended up doing really well, but it was miserable. I, that first year, I probably lost half my body weight. My, I, my acne was, I'd never had acne. Like I had the worst cystic pimples. My hair fell out of my head. I wanted to drop out. I had no idea what was going on. I, I eventually got with it <laughs> um, and, and figured, oh, this is it, you know? And, and that's why a lot in my teaching now as a professor, I try to vindicate that experience by preparing students in ways that I wish I had been prepared. But anyway, um, I end up then using my law degree to create my own job because, you know, I graduated in 2005. There's nothing, Palestinian human rights in the United States, it's like foreign, like maybe, definitely. And maybe it, you know, you find that maybe in Europe, definitely in Palestine where trailblazers um, like Rajesh um, Hade and like, uh, um, the small Shamas, um, I forget his first name, established Al Haq, where other, you know, um, and the first Palestinian human rights organization, there was a, a legacy of human rights for Palestinians in the Arab world. Um, and Adala, that's established by Rina Rosenberg, Hassan Jabarin, and, and many other organizations today. But in, in the United States, Saying Palestinian human rights was crazy. So I had to create my own job, right? I had to get, a, get some money, scholarship, scholarship, and then establish my own job. And I did that at the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation. I'm saying that it's not an occupation, it's apartheid. Um, and planted, the, the deal was this. They needed me to help build BDS around the country because I'd already been doing it as a college student. They were like, we want you know, half my time was spent seeding BDS campaigns in churches, universities, community centers, traveling the country to do that. And I said, well, that I get to own the other half of my time where I want to sue Israeli Israelis for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And that was the deal. So I end up working with teams of lawyers at the Center for Constitutional Rights and other independent lawyers like Susan Akram 
and Judith Chomsky to sue two Israeli officials in 2005. We sued uh, Avi Dichter and Moshe Alon for war crimes in the south of Lebanon, the bombing of Qana in 1996, as well as for the raising of uh, 5,000 homes in Rafah in the south of Gaza in 2005. Right, and I was so excited because this was the moment that it made sense. I vindicated my whole experience of law school and the misery of it. And within six months, less than a year, both cases were dismissed on grounds of non-justiciability, which means that they couldn't even get to the stage of being heard by a panel of judges because the basic non-justiciability, you know, there's the political question doctrine and the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The long story short is they, the court is basically saying, we don't have the authority to hear these cases. Mm -hmm. We can't hear these cases in these courts. Um, and that was, you know, kind of my first realization of like, what? So in, in my capacity of, of, you know, doing legal strategy, I was studying other courts to see how maybe we should just go to a different jurisdiction to find more favorable panel of judges that would come to a different outcome. And what I found in that research is that, hold on, hold on, hold on. This isn't about, you know, being political and that it's better, you know, that you can't sue Israel because in fact, there's cases where they've considered, you know, cases that implicate China. There's been, you know, lawsuits brought against officials of Papua New Guinea, the Philippines, Paraguay and elsewhere. So, you know, anyway, and in doing that research, what ended up happening is I produced my first scholarly article where I demonstrated bias in U.S. federal courts and argued that there is distinct treatment of when Arabs bring cases against Israelis. That is, you know, if you control for all the variables, doesn't exist in any of these other cases. That was my first law review article, right, academically, which was, you know, I didn't plan it that way. Um, but it was also, you know, as part of my awakening and my critical thinking of, hold up, why, why isn't the law doing what we thought it was going to do, right? And I kept trying, though. I kept trying to use the law as an advocate to achieve certain outcomes. I end up, um, you know, working on the Hill as legal counsel to figure out how power was working on the inside. I end up you know, going with a, a fact, a, a lawyer's fact-finding mission to um, Gaza in 2009 after the first large-scale offensive, you know, and, and trying to lobby the, the U.S. government to stop selling weapons to Israel. I end up working for a Palestinian NGO, Badil, for uh, Palestinian refugee and residency rights and representing them at the United Nations, um, you know, uh, to file petitions in that way. I mean, I keep trying to figure out you know it was just like this trial and error until the frustration with the limits of what the law could achieve becomes so daunting that the question for me of what is the relationship between law and politics becomes so you know overwhelming that I go back to school to answer that question so I went back to school and then you know the outcome of of many years of study and, and continued practice I produced the book um uh, justice for some uh, law on the question of Palestine, which basically argues that law is politics. Law is politics. It's not to say that 
you know, um, but here's the fuller, you know, the more that that's kind of an easy, anybody who's critical of the law will say, well, of course, might equals right. Obviously, law is whatever the powerful want it to be. And I don't come to that conclusion. Obviously, that's not untrue, but it's not the end of the story either, right? Because it diminishes the amount of power that we have as people, right? Because if that were totally the case, Palestinians would have been squashed a long time ago. And yet we haven't because of the power that people have been able to wage against the only nuclear power in the Middle East and the U.S.'s most significant self-proclaimed significant ally in the Middle East, and yet we were able to achieve monumental achievements, both in law at the United Nations and United Nations and on the international scale. So that's why that answer is unsatisfying. And what I offer is that law is politics. And in order to be used to leverage progressive causes, it must be leveraged in, uh, it must be leveraged um, in the sophisticated service of a political movement which means that the law is not gonna save us, but the law can be a tool that mo political movements use on their behalf, which means I don't open up a law book and say, or a, you know, a case book or whatever else, right? And say, well, this is what, what's available and we can just you know, do X, right? Instead I see, well, what are political movements doing? What's, mm -hmm. What are people doing? And then what can the law be used in this political moment to, to help achieve it? And sometimes the law can't do nothing. The law, it will do the opposite. It'll be counterproductive, in which case you don't want to use the law or in some cases it can be used. So I, the analogy I offer is think of the law like the sail of the boat, right? You can, if you're in water without a sail, you can't necessarily move. But if you put up a sail, you still don't know what direction you're moving in the law is the sail, the wind is, and the direction right. that the boat flows in is the political movement, right? So the, so the so law is not use, the end all be all. You know, put up the sail when helpful. Absolutely, like any other means, you know, put up the sail when, when the uh, conditions are favorable, pull down the sail when it's harmful and create your own sail when possible. We can also create law which is also what the PLO did in the 1970s. They created new law um, in order to help advance their cause, our cause. So as Palestinians, what other means um, do we have apart from the law? What you're doing right now, what you're doing right now, all these means are at our disposal, our disposal, right? It's one thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out like, how is it that we get free? That's a major question. The short answer is struggle. There is no pathway to freedom without struggle, right? So then it becomes, well, what, does that, what should that struggle look like? The worst way to answer that question is to think that there is a formula or that there is a single theory that explains our oppression globally, right? There's no single theory that explains our oppression. It's not like white supremacy. It's not just white supremacy. It's not just neoliberalism, right? It's not just, you know, whatever else you want to imagine, colonialism. It, it's not just patriarchy, right? There are so many things that are intersecting to create our conditions of oppression. And as we think about our struggle, we want to think about, you know, how is it that we overcome it? I mean, just think about our Palestinian condition. How limited would our struggle be if we thought that our struggle was just about right over um you know um you know ending um israeli colonialism settler colonialism right what happens then to all the all 
um, the oppression that that Palestinian women and Palestinian LGBTQ uh, members of our community feel. They're still not free, right? They still haven't achieved. So how limited would it be if we thought that there was one way to achieve struggle? And forget that. Like, what if we just thought about it? Like, what about our class conditions and the classism, right? Palestinians all also have like a lot of diversity. And there's a lot of Palestinian capitalists who believe that if we just build and have business and it trickles down that everybody can be equal and there's still going to be inequitable distribution. And we see that like anybody who visits Hatta Gaza, okay? There's even millionaires in Gaza in the midst of squalor, right? In the midst of humanitarian disaster, you still have, you know, some some 500 millionaires. And 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 for folks who want to think about it more subtly, think about when you anybody who's gone to, you know, what's considered the Ramallah bubble, right? Yeah. Um and and this which I'm not I, I, honestly I think I'm not going to talk about rain on any Palestinians who try to find joy wherever they can find it, right? That's not my, my concern. My concern is it is not just a nationalist struggle. Our struggle remains, you know, um, one against patriarchy and against um, capitalism and against imperialism, you know, generally. So I, for me, that's why my, my approach to struggle is also, it's everything, man. It's gotta be a cultural shift. Right. How do we shift our culture? Right. So that's where the media, the music, the podcast, the, you know, the images um, comes into it. It's also, you know, if you can use law as a tool, use law as a tool, but don't think it's and we don't have a single savior. If you want to lobby, you know, I know there's a lot of people who will, who will poop on lobbying. Watch me being a mom poop um, <laughs> on 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 lobbying congressional members. You know, I did it because I wanted to figure out what power looked like. So for me, it was also a form of study. And I think that I'm stronger for it, even though I didn't think it was for me, right? I just, I couldn't swallow that pill, but I, do, I definitely won't, won't criticize anybody who does want to do it, right? Congressional advocacy, congressional representation, we need that too, but it too will not set us free, right? So it's the, it's the, it's all of these different pieces um, that come together. There's a lot of people that for them, it's the humanitarian. They've got to, you know, they got to do the humanitarian thing or it's that, you know, they want to create more representation in different professional fields so that people see us. Good. All of it is good. You know, whether or not we can leverage that to make it even more powerful, now that becomes an issue of um, more of a centralized leadership than we've had since Oslo and since the dissolution of the Palestinian Liberation Organization as a vibrant body, right? We lack a more concentrated leadership, which is not to say like, we have to have those leaders because I think if we recreated it right now, we might recreate something of the past rather than something of the future, right? Um, and frankly, the PLO of the past was one that was comprised of multiple political parties. That's what the PLO is. It was a, you know, it was a coalition of different Palestinian factions we don't even have Palestinian factions right now. So I don't, I don't also yearn for a leadership because that's, you know, that's not based in reality that, well, if we want a leadership, we also need to organize ourselves politically. And that can happen in many different ways so that we can be represented, right? I don't want geographical representation and it'll give me five, you know, representatives from the United States and five from, you know, South America and Canada and da, 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 da. And then I have like this geographical distribution RPLO of the future, in my opinion, as it has been in the past, has to be comprised of different 
representation of different political agendas in our community. We don't all subscribe to the same one. You think everybody subscribes to my agenda uh, for women, you know, for gender, um, um, liberation and against capitalism? No way, no way. Um, and I know that. So, but I, I want to be part of the group. I want, I want that opinion represented. I don't want my representation in the PLO to be people from the United States. I want my representation in the PLO to be people who have a vision like I do, right? And so, I, I, and that, that's to digress a bit, but to say that before, you know, we, we jump immediately to bemoan that we don't have the PLO and we don't have a leadership. Yeah, but it starts with us. If we want that, we need to be able to create the constellations that represent our politics. And once that, then we can demand, well, I want the this to be represented in my national demand. Now there's currents, I'm not saying there's not, I'm not saying we're not organized, but I, just to emphasize that whatever we want starts with us. 100%. And in your book, actually, you do mention like the big possibility of having to pursue Palestinian liberation. Um, through paths other than you know the traditional nation nation state model two state solution, let's do a bit of like radical imagining. Um, what what can you can you walk us through some alternative examples that are worth considering? Um, so what I get to in the course of the book, and I learned a lot. Like I thought I knew a lot, and I learned so much in the course of you know uh, research and writing. Um, which is a very humbling reminder that we, well, as much as you know, we probably don't know anything, right? Um, and as much as I try to, you know, produce and create new archives of Palestinian knowledge because they don't necessarily, you know, a lot of the oral history work that I did was also creating that. I, there's still like so many archives I didn't even delve into. My Arabic is good. It's not great. So I know that had it been even better, I would have been able to go into deeper, you know, um, Arab, Arabic archives. All of that is to just start with like this note of, I, I, I know what I know now, but this isn't the extent of knowledge. And I don't 100%. know, you know, and I hope that I continue to grow and change, right? Because I have, and, I, and, and that's one thing I, I'm proud of. So what did I get to at the end of the book? was that, you know, I was like, wow, I just spent some three years researching and reading, and I'm about to end this book. And obviously I'm a one-stater, right? Um, but how disappointing would it be if I just end with a message of some, you know, vision of, you know, one state solution that's been done. I've been even writing about that before I even started research the book. But if I learned anything, I should learn that maybe there's something else. And it was even more disappointing because frankly, everybody, has known about that solution. The one state solution was the primary solution. The radical solution that Palestinians offered was the two state solution, not the opposite. It wasn't, that wasn't the counter-revolutionary force. And in 1947, in the UN Special Committee on Palestine, the three options that the UN members were considering in order to resolve, you know, the question of Palestine was a, a federal state, a federal Palestinian state with strong protections for strong minority protections for the Jewish community. The other one was a binational state, a state that would be, you know, um, both for Palestinians and Jews as, 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 as a national home. And the third solution was two states, partition, split them up, right? So the other thing that occurred to me was like, oh my God, after all this growth, I'm about to propose the same thing that was proposed in 1947. <laughs> 
And it was um, a sister of mine uh, who works, uh, you know, she's also, you know, a movement lawyer and she works a lot um, on, on, you know, especially for Black uh, liberation. And she was like, you know what, Nura, I think what you, because I was stuck. And she's like, I think you need to, um, I think you need to read, go, go back to Afrofuturism. And <laughs> I laughed. So I was like, yo, you need, you're wasting my time. I mean, I love, I was actually reading Octavia Butler at the time and, and Parable of the Sower. I was like, I love that too, but you don't, you don't understand. You really don't get it, do you? That and that night, obviously I read every night and I read every morning. That night I read an article, I put it down, went to bed in the middle of the night. I woke up, my eyes just popped open. I was like, oh, she's right. She's right, because what Afrofuturism tells us and it offers is two basic things. One is that there are no optimal paths to return to, right? There isn't something in the past that was better than we have now, especially for Africans who have been enslaved, right? Um, and there's only optimal futures to create. And the other one was you don't imagine how to break out of a prison by just you know thinking how do you escape break the bars and dig a hole and, or climb through the window you got to imagine something much farther much more you know radical that 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 provides inspiration that provides hope that provides kind of what is the long term that you can build to for that future right so in that moment i was like shit this whole time i've been thinking about the return of refugees, like we all do, right? The return of refugees um, as, as the culmination of our struggle, that's when we've won and triumphed. But the truth is, is that when refugees return, that's the beginning of our struggle. Because now is, how we, now is when we have to figure out, now what? Now, not only how, how do we organize ourselves, how do we break up a plot of land that used to be for a family of seven that's now a family of like, what, something like 95, right? How do we all, how do we figure out, you know, the different now Palestinian diaspora um, being back with, we don't have a single culture. We're multicultural. We're, it's going to, you know, pluralist society. How do we exist with one another? What kinds of ways do we recreate our educational curricula, our, our, our ways of, you know, Political organization, our own economies, right? Our relationship to the land. What does that look like? And in the course of answering those questions, what is the what is the future that we can offer to you know those um, Jewish Zionists who believe that Israel is their redemption and their answer for their you know freedom? What is the possibilities that we can offer them that is better than what Israel has been able to offer them? Right, because we're about to recreate the future. We're not literally we're literally going back to the future. We're not going back to Palestine 1947. No one's going back to Palestine 1947. We're going back to Palestine 2021, 2022. What does it look like? So that exercise, so then I offer, you know, ways that how do we break up then the nationalist thinking around this in order, you know, and I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. That's a that's a question of provocation, and I do it. Um, I do it knowing full well, that's a lot to ask of communities with boots on our necks. You know, just last week, a Palestinian whose home was demolished decided to live in a cave 
you know, as his ancestors have done, because he figured Israelis couldn't demolish the cave. And they did that too and evicted him. So I know it's a lot to ask for that, but to the extent that we have, you know, can be thinking and be asking and be imagining that it should be part of our questions. And so another thing that I ask is let's think about this as an anti-racist struggle, right? What happens when we reconsider that, you know, if, if, if Jews so much think, is Jewish Zionists, so much believe that they are returning somehow to their, you know, they, this idea that they're diaspora, they're returning, this is not settlement, it's not colonial settlement, da 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 da, da. If, But if it really was their return, then why wouldn't they have returned to the Middle East rather than trying to create a European colony in the Middle East, right? And how did that history produce within Israel a white supremacist society irrespective of our presence as native Palestinians? They have created a white supremacist hierarchy um, that has excluded, um, first and foremost, Middle Eastern Jews from Iraq and Iran, right? And Turkey and um, Algeria and Morocco and Yemen and Syria, right? So what is it about that? What happens when we start to think that this isn't just about native versus settler, but this is also about a struggle against white supremacy? Um, what possibilities open up for us? Uh, and so those are those are things that I that I think about, Marwan. I don't have answers. I, I, I wish I did. Part of the work that I'm doing now very slowly, much slower than I did with the book. And actually the book was a product of, you know, 15 years of of, of professional work and thought and school. So I guess it wasn't just the three years of writing. Um, but the now that I'm thinking about the next, you know, the other questions I want to ask are, what are ways to organize ourselves beyond the state? The nation state is a concept that we have organized ourselves within as a political concept for some 200 years. It's not the end all be all. There were ways that we organized ourselves that preceded it. There could be ways that we organize ourselves that follow it. And so I'm looking now to, you know, the transnational activism that Palestinians are engaged in primarily with other indigenous communities, primarily with black liberation struggles to think about, well, what are, what do those movements tell us about possibilities for the future abolitionist futures of how we organize ourselves? That might not offer the necessary answers either, but I think that those could be clues, um, you know, and, and part of the clues already exist in a history where we've seen, you know, Kurds organize themselves um, along horizon horizontal axes. We've seen also, you know, the history of maroonage where, you know, in, in, in during slavery, the idea of creating, just going off the grid and creating, you know, maroon societies um, that have nothing to do, you know, that j just wanted to be free. What does it mean when we start going, you know, what does that mean for us then? How do we get off the grid? What do we do? How do we create the alternative? Because the battle over the state is, you know, a big one. What is it that we demand of the state? We want it to provide, but we want it to provide in a way that's, you know, not serving elite interests. But how do we control that? I mean, these, these are the questions. And for Palestinians, frankly, it's looking like we will never have a state. The horizon of statehood uh, as independent, you know, nation state has probably passed. So it's, you know, it's opportune for us to think, well, then what else? What else if not the Palestinian state? And I'm not you know, it doesn't mean we have to give up on the idea of returning home or creating societies or, you know, building, but 
you know, it, if we stay in the idea of it's us, you know, this kind of, you know, commensurate, you know, incommensurate equation of it's either Palestinians or it's Israel, right? Those two things cannot coexist. You know, those are incommensurable and mutually exclusive, right? But the return of refugees offers a way that we can all be there, right? The return of refugees doesn't make the possibility of Jewish belonging, doesn't negate that possibility. But if that's in fact what we're thinking about, then, you know, then let's use belonging as a framework rather than sovereignty as a framework to think about how we can all belong. And that's, that's like I said with the with other example, that's a few stages beyond, you know, it requires a bit of comfort um, and a, a breathing room, you know, space to breathe, you know, and I know very, very well, like I was just on the phone with my uncle yesterday, they still haven't gotten my cousin's body back even to bury. So I, I'm not, I'm not saying this naively. I'm saying this that to the extent that we don't want to just resist, 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 but to the extent that we can afford to dream, right? We should dream. We should. And it's not a waste of time and it's not a lofty exercise, right? Right, 100%. Do you think the internet, you know, as an eraser of borders is a tool for us in, in, your, in your dreams? I'm sorry, say that again? I was saying, do you think the internet, you know, when, when you do dream, um, do you think the internet is a tool or not? Again, I think all of it is tools, right? And I think, you know, the internet is just the beginning. Who knows what it's going to be, you know? My six-year-old daughter is is more acquainted with you know my my father, um, and so the it's 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 who knows the internet is today, but who knows what's going to be next, right? The idea I I get a little scared. I have to be honest. I'm one of those people that I prefer I prefer nature. I prefer simplicity. I'm a little worried about everything becoming robotic. I'm I'm averse to the fact that people. Um, actually live through their avatars, their internet avatars than they do through their real relationships, right? Um, um, that we're digitized, that, you know, even in, you know, social media, what ends up happening is we brand ourselves. There's this whole thing about branding. It's like all of it is so immersed in individual um, consumerist culture. Um, so I'm a little hesitant, but I also know that this is, this is it. This is the pace we're moving at. And whatever we know today is going to be uh, something of our past in a couple of decades because it's, it's not over, right? So we just have to be, we have to be ready to, to, to be moving with it. And I think Palestinians have done a remarkable job, um, you know, creating space um, in digital media um, and through social media and the democratization of media. I think we have done, you know, our resources are abundant in, ter in, in, term in our people. Our people are our greatest resources, right? The amount of talent, the amount of energy, the amount of commitment, the amount of vision is abundant. And so um, here, you know, I think we've demonstrated that well also on, on the internet, so to speak. Yeah, I love that. And Noura, just um, a last little question because as you know, there's a lot of people that look up to you. What advice would you give to young Palestinians that are listening to this right now that you wish you would have gotten maybe when you got started? Two things. The people who tell you 
you're wasting your time and this is just how the world is aren't right because they're older those folks are just they're resigned and they're too scared to take a risk um, because changing what we know requires a tremendous amount of risk of our comfort uh, and 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 familiarity with our surroundings and finally figuring out what life looks like only to you know to want to like append it with some different formulation right so when you hear people say that don't trust them because they're older they're speaking from a place of fear and a place of, of wanting to hold on to something that they're familiar so keep on dreaming and then the second thing is and this was something that was hard for me because I really you know uh, sort of I'm, I'm right I see the good in everybody before I see the bad I trust you until you hurt me which I don't recommend folks it's not a good necessarily approach I should have exercised much better judgment but you know haters are abundant and you know I remember my elders telling me this when I was getting you know I've you know getting hate um from a very young age of like folks just trying to like trip me up or or rain on my parade or just mad because I'm happy right and elders, um, they'd be upset I called them elders, but I considered that in terms of they're, they're my mentors, right? They shaped me politically. Um, who, who said to me, Nura, folks, about you see that's moving. You are, you are a moving train. So you are in people's, uh, you know, eye view. And so they're gonna talk about you. It doesn't mean that they're right and you can't let it get to you. So know that the, the more that you do, the more that people are gonna hate on you and you just gotta keep on moving. Um, and so that's the other thing I would tell to young people because you know our movement doesn't offer us a lot of rewards. We're not really celebrated. We're punished for this work in Palestine. And so it hurts extra when it's our own community that wants to cut our throats. Um, and so knowing that that is going to come, it's not just unique us as our community. Um, and we need to figure out moving and hopefully, hopefully develop the tools to overcome it, including, um, you know, things like restorative justice where, you know, anyway, I'll leave it there because that's a whole other discussion. But that's <laughs> my two, my, my two pieces. Um, don't, don't, don't trust the folks. You know, frankly, the, 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 I can distill both those pieces of advice into one thing, which is trust yourself. Just trust yourself. I love it. Noura, thank you so much. You are really the embodiment of Palestinian excellence. Fajad, thank you so much for being on today. <laughs> <laughs> All right.